Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today's movie currently sits as the most requested movie to cover here on the show. I'm speaking, of course, about 1989's Glory. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, we'll be chatting with Professor Gregory J.W. Irwin from Temple University, who is not only an award-winning military historian who has written numerous books, he also happened to be involved in the production of the movie as well. So we'll get some behind-the-scenes insight of what it was like to be on set. Before we connect with Gregory, though, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. And that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, all the main characters in the movie were real people. Number two, the 54th Massachusetts set an example that helped sweep away a lot of doubts about raising black regiments in the U.S. Army. Number three, Robert Gould Shaw died during the attack on Fort Wagner. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Gregory J.W. Irwin about the historical accuracy of Glory. One common thing a lot of movies do is to make up fictional characters or create composite characters. So let's start with the who of the characters we see in Glory. The movie opens by introducing us to the main character and senior officer in the 54th, Robert Goldshaw, who we learn is a 23-year-old son of a wealthy Boston abolitionist family. Soon after, we're introduced to his friend and fellow officer, Cabot Forbes. Those two make up the two commanding officers of the 54th throughout the movie, and then there's four main infantrymen that they kind of focus on throughout the mo movie. There's Trip, Jupiter Shartz, Thomas Searles, and John Rawlins. Were all those real people in the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment? Robert Gouldshaw was the uh, first colonel of the 54th, played by Matthew Broderick. Shaw was born in October of 1837. So when he took command of the 54th Massachusetts in uh, early 1863, he was 25, uh, which was Broderick's age at the time. So it was inspired uh, casting two effete Easterners. The only big difference was that uh, Shaw was a blonde. And, uh, Matthew Broderick was brunette and didn't dye, didn't dye his hair. Cabot Forbes, his best friend and his second in command, has the rank of major. He is a fictional character. Uh, the two uh, other field officers, original field officers of the 54th, were a pair of brothers who came from a Quaker family in Philadelphia. Penrose Pet Hallowell was the first lieutenant colonel, and then Edward and Ned Hallowell uh, was the major. So many blacks streamed to Massachusetts when they began recruiting the 54th to join the regiment that they had a surplus. And so uh, the governor of Massachusetts decided to uh, establish a second black regiment, the 55th. And Penn Hallowell, uh, Shaw's lieutenant colonel, original lieutenant colonel, becomes the colonel of the 55th, and Ned then moves up and becomes lieutenant colonel by the time of, of the Fort Wagner attack. There was a captain among the officers of the uh, uh, 54th. Uh, his name was uh, Cabot J. Russell, but he was a captain. Among the, uh, the black characters, all four of them are fictional. 
Uh, the uh, original sergeant major of the regiment was not some father figure in his 50s like Morgan Freeman. He was one of the sons of Frederick Douglass, uh, Lewis Douglass, who was around 22 when he became sergeant major. So the sergeant major of the regiment was a young, energetic man, made a big impression on uh, his superiors and his subordinates, so they called him the lion of the regiment. And most of the other black uh, soldiers in the 54th, almost all of them, were not runaway slaves. They were free blacks. Some may have been born in slavery, but they lived a long time in the North. Others lived in the North, and that was the whole point of the regiment. Uh, Governor John Albion Andrew, who founded it, was afraid that a regiments composed of former slaves having uh, been conditioned to fear uh, white men, having been uh, uh, you know, indoctrinated in being inferior, that they might not stand up to the Confederates in battle unless they had role models, uh, northern blacks, men who had never called anyone else master, who could go and show them, yes, black men can do the same thing that white men can do on the field of battle. So the 54th was supposed to be the role model regiment consisting of the cream of black northern manpower and also the cream of white anti-slavery society in the officer corps. Hmm. The way that the movie shows the 54th being formed, it happens after the battle at Antietam Creek in 1862. And we see Captain Shaw, is, he's then a captain at that point, he's recovering from an injury. And at some sort of a party or something, the movie doesn't really explain what the party is, but he's introduced to a few important people that you mentioned. Uh, Frederick Douglass, and the governor of Massachusetts, John Andrews. And it's here that Shaw finds out the governor is planning to form this all-black regiment, and Shaw is going to be promoted from captain to colonel as he takes over command of the regiment there. How well did the movie do showing how the 54th was formed? The basic facts are correct, but the timeline is compressed. Shaw gets hit by a spent ball at Antietam, so that must have hurt quite a bit. But he returns to service with his regiment, the White Second Massachusetts. And uh, Governor Andrew, who was a, a longtime abolitionist, one of the staunchest supporters of the Northern War effort, he had been pushing for a long time for permission to, to recruit black soldiers. But the door doesn't open until Abraham Lincoln promulgates the, the final version of his Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. And that grants permission. And Andrew jumps on that. And on January 26th, so it's a couple months after Antietam, which was September 17th, 1862. On January 26th, 1863, Andrew gets permission to raise a black regiment. Well, he was told he could raise corps, uh, including people of African descent. So he said, I'm going to raise a black regiment. He sends a letter to Shaw's father, Francis G. Shaw, who is depicted briefly in, in the movie. So that's another real guy. Uh, that we see uh, as uh, Francis Shaw, uh, formerly of Boston, is living on Staten Island. And Andrew says, yeah, I, I need somebody from the right kind of family with the right kind of connections associated with the right kind of values to be the colonel. Your son has, has done well in the second Massachusetts. Would he be interested? And so Francis Shaw goes down, down into, uh, I believe it was Virginia, uh, where the second Massachusetts was encamped uh, during the winter of 1862-63. And he tells his son about the governor's offer. And he didn't buy into everything, mom and dad. <laughs> was important. You know, he, he had his own idea about how he wanted to uh, lead his life. But after a couple of days, he changes his mind and accepts the offer. There's some speculation that mom got involved. Sarah Blake Sturgis Shaw, she was the dominant 
member of that family. And uh, she may have uh, put a guilt trip on him, or maybe he thought she would put a guilt trip on him, but he, he accepts. He accepts the, the offer of the colonelcy and uh, agrees to preside over this, this controversial experiment. In the movie, after the regiment is formed, we do see them going through some training at Reedville Camp in Massachusetts. And according to the movie, this is toward the end of 1862. So I'm getting a sense that there's going to be some timeline changes already. But we learn from some letters that Shaw is writing to his parents that the men are learning fast. But we also get some racism from the white Union soldiers who are making fun of the black soldiers in the 54th, calling them names that I'm not going to repeat here. Did the men in the 54th face racism from the white soldiers in the Union Army? Oh, sure. They faced it from their colonel. Shaw, when he's writing about the regiment, and even beforehand uh, in his correspondence, uh, it's littered with the N-word and darky and things like that. But as he, yeah, he came from an abolitionist family. I'm sure he was exposed to prominent black leaders, people like Frederick Douglass. But he really didn't know blacks as people. You know, the ordinary African-American, maybe as waiters and barbers and things like that. But uh, they weren't part of his social circle. So, you know, he he writes, but but they surprise him once he gets to know them. Uh, In fact, he writes things. And again, this shows that he had more than one prejudice. They're, They're smarter than the Irish I've had, the Irish immigrants I've had in the second Massachusetts. They pick up the drill faster and they're so motivated. They're so dedicated. And he ends up saying that I am confident we will leave this state with as fine a regiment as ever marched. So, you know, the movie's about Robert Bullshaw coming of age, right? You know, as a man and a leader. It doesn't show that side of his personality. He becomes more enlightened in his views on race. And that's one of the admirable things about him, because he's, he's a 19th century man who starts rising above the limitations of his age. That's interesting that you mentioned that about having multiple prejudices there. Yes. And he's dealing with a cross-section of the northern Black population. Massachusetts didn't have enough Black men to fill the regiment. So they sent out recruiting parties or recruiting agents as far west as Chicago, Illinois. And you've got guys coming in from all the different northern states, a lot of them from Pennsylvania, a lot from Ohio, like Oberlin, which was the first college to admit African-Americans as undergraduates. Some coming in from Canada, uh, where if you were a runaway slave, that was the one place in North America where you were free because you were beyond the reach of federal law. And so it's a a daily education for him in interacting with these men. Most of them, because of the prejudices of the day, come from the lower tier of the economic uh, pyramid, uh, uh, waiters, barbers, people in different service occupations. Although waiters were often a term for caterers, for blacks who had their own restaurants. And because they were very good at the culinary arts, they were frequented by a lot of wealthy white people. But also there were, there were men who had been at least one doctor, several educated, ordained uh, ministers, engineers, um, not civil engineers today, but people who could keep engines running, steam engines, that kind of stuff. And, and most of them could read and write. Uh, most of them were, were literate, uh, which uh, means that we have more testimony about the 54th from uh, black voices than we do for regiments where most of the men were slaves and were kept illiterate by a Southern state law. One thing I'm curious about while I was watching the movie, I kind of got the sense from a lot of the dialogue that was going on that 
nobody really expected the 54th to ever see real combat. And we'll get to kind of how the movie depicts them overcoming that in a little bit. But as I was watching it, I was like, well, why would you form a regiment in the military if you, while a war is going on, if you never expected them to actually see real combat? Can you give a little more historical context around that? Well, that was not Governor Andrews' intention, I can assure you. He wanted these guys to go into battle and prove that black men could fight and die as bravely as white men. And there were a lot of opportunities to do this because this was, and it still ranks as America's bloodiest war in terms of American lives lost. But there was widespread prejudice uh, against African Americans. Most 19th century whites viewed them as inferiors and thought if you put them into uniform, if you put them into battle, they'll they'll do one of two things. They will bolt and run because they're not going to be able to stand up to white men. Or they will run them up like savages and kill everybody, you know, murder the wounded and stuff like that. They'll, They'll be out of control. So, you know, most of the black troops that are raised during the Civil War, because of that prevailing prejudice, they are used as garrison troops. Now, because guerrilla war was so prevalent, they had people shooting at them uh, a good amount of the time. But, you know, Sherman didn't take any black troops with him on his Atlanta campaign. He didn't take any black troops with him on his march to the sea. He kept them back in Tennessee to uh, guard that Union-held state. And the Confederate Army invaded and tried to take Nashville, and the black troops proved that they could fight. In fact, their commander, George Henry Thomas, who was born in Virginia uh, as a young child, was almost killed in the Nat Turner Revolt. Uh, he stayed loyal to the Union, but he still had the racial prejudices. After he saw what his black troops did, he decided that they were worthy of political equality, that African Americans should have the vote. So it's another example of a prejudiced person of the 19th century who, by having actual experience with African Americans, rethinks a lot of his worldview. Was that something you think that Andrews knew was going to happen, where them being a regiment was going to open up? The worldview for a lot of people who would then have to be interacting with them, and almost one of the one of the reasons why he was doing that beyond just the military side, you think? Oh, oh certainly, that, that was his goal. In fact, Frederick Douglass, who acted as one of the primary recruiters for the regiment after uh, the Battle of Fort Wagner, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, said that that put to rest more cavils, more lies about black manhood than a century of normal observation. And that's exactly what, what Andrew wanted to do. He wanted to prove, show, you know, encourage other African-Americans, uh, runaway slaves, you know, to, to enlist and, and to fight, to, to realize they weren't inherently inferior to whites. But sure, he was trying to make a statement to uh, the rest of white America. So he, he wants these guys to get into battle. There's, there's no doubt about that. That's his intention. But he's not in charge of everything. You know, he could form a regiment and hand it over to the United States government. But once it's mustered into federal service, then it's under federal control. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And so it's kind of outside of his hands at that point. He can still make waves. I mean, he's a governor of one of the more powerful and populous states. And Lincoln needs him. There's a scene in the movie where Denzel Washington's character, Trip is caught for deserting the regiment. His punishment is to be flogged before the entire regiment. And when they take off his shirt, you can see the scars of where he's been whipped before, presumably when he was a slave. Despite Major Forbes' disapproval, Shaw orders the flogging to take place anyway. And the way the movie shows it, flogging seems to be a normal punishment for anyone deserting the army. But then there's a moral conflict with carrying out the punishment on the men on the 54th, since It's pretty much the same punishment carried out by slave owners. 
and maybe it's just me, but as I was watching the movie, I saw Shaw and and Trip were just staring at each other through the flogging. I could almost see, you know, the gears turning inside of Shaw's mind, you know, coming from an abolitionist family. Like, am I better than the institution of slavery that so against if I'm punishing people in the same way when they don't follow orders? Was that a real punishment for deserting the army? And was there any sort of a moral conflict that Shaw had in carrying out a punishment on the regiment? Well, you get the point uh, of the scene. Uh, it's certainly a setup to create that kind of inner tension. And, and again, that friction will help to shape uh, Shaw's uh, redemption or his maturation, however you want to put it. True to its uh, British Army roots, uh, the United States Army made pretty free use of, of corporal punishment going back to the Revolution. Flogging was an actual punishment uh, throughout the antebellum period. In August 1861, though, with first summer, something like 600,000, 700,000 citizen soldiers uh, flock into the Union Army. I mean, these are, are, are voters, and they've got relatives back home who can vote. They get rid of flogging. In August of 1861, they, they end that punishment. But Shaw, you know, he was a strict disciplinarian. He believed in discipline that, you know, you've got to be tough on these guys because they're facing tests that are even tougher than what they'll meet on the drill field. So he did use forms of corporal punishment uh, for somebody, you know, who kept following up or wouldn't conform to orders. He'd have to stand on a barrel. Uh, or they had a, a punishment called bucking and gagging. And they would take a bayonet and they would tie it tight into your mouth. And they'd make you sit down and they'd put a stick uh, under your knees. And then they'd, bring your, they'd make you bend forward and, and bring your elbows under the stick and they'd tie in place. And if you sat that way all day, you'd be pretty sore. You would, you would get a lesson. So Shaw, uh, according to contemporary accounts, used that barrel standing, which... Uh, you know, it could be tough, especially if uh, people make fun of you and, and you'd be the object of ridicule, a way of shaming people. But bucking and gagging, that wasn't like flogging, but it was, uh, I wouldn't want to have either visited on me. That sounds horrible. I mean, they both sound horrible, but especially bucking and gagging. The other, the the barrel almost sounds like, um, it, like almost like stocks where you're kind of stuck there and forced to be humiliated and, you know, in, in front of public, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, EarnIn. Going back to the movie, we see a division quartermaster named Kendrick, and he's one of the soldiers who says there's no way the 54th is going to see combat. And since he's in charge of making sure the soldiers 
get their provisions, he purposely withholds shoes from the men of the 54th. The excuse that he gives is that soldiers who are going into combat need the provisions first, and since the 54th are never going to see combat, they don't get the shoes. The way the movie shows it, it plays out in the movie, is you can tell that there's some racism going on there from Kendrick. After finding out just how badly his men need the shoes, we see a shot of uh, Tripp's feet, and they're all bloody, and they're in really bad shape. We get to see an angry side of Shaw. He bursts into the quartermaster's office, demands 600 shoes and 1,200 pairs of socks, or he's going to report the quartermaster for keeping 700 Union soldiers from getting their shoes. And then in the next shot, we see everyone getting new shoes. How much of that actually happened? Well, this is where Camp Redville or Camp Meggs in, in Reedville, Massachusetts, that wouldn't have happened uh, with Governor Andrew on the job. All Shaw had to do was be to send a telegram uh, to the governor and holy hell would have descended on, on that quartermaster. And Shaw gives no no indication that happened. He said when, when men were coming in, uh, they would wash them and make them take a bath and then they would clothe them. They'd issue them uniforms. The scene gives a chance to show how Shaw is now, you know, identifying with these men, these strangers who belong to a, ra- a race strange to him. There's a solidarity developing. He's going beyond the rules now. He'll break the rules for the sake of his men. You know, he, he did impress the men. You know, once they met his standards, they said no one could have been kind. If you did what you were supposed to do, then then you found him to be a fair and understanding officer. Something like this, though, happened in the making of the movie in which I was involved. When we were shooting the, the final scenes for the attack on Fort Wagner on a beach on Jekyll Island, Georgia, and it was late March. It wasn't too hot, but you're on a sandy beach, a white sand. The sand would reflect the heat. Half of the extras, the black extras who portrayed the 54th, were black reenactors, uh, middle class. Americans or above who were there because they wanted to participate in this chance to show, you know, black men as, as heroes. And because there weren't enough black reenactors at that time, the other half, the other 100 were street people from Brunswick, New Georg- uh, Brunswick Georgia. You know, uh, these are people working for 35 bucks a day. It, it was a way to make some money. It sounded like fun, et cetera. And a lot of them were kind of wild. And, and when the uh, film company would come by with pickup trucks full of uh, of soft drinks and, and bottled water for the extras, uh, one time these guys just kind of stormed the truck and just started walking with six packs and things and scared the hell out of these white Hollywood liberals. I'm, I'm a white East Coast liberal myself, but uh, scared the hell out of these guys. And they stopped bringing uh, refreshments to the black extras, not just the the, the, the street people, but also the, the extras in the reenactor companies. And as a white officer in one of the reenactor companies, I got to feel it was like to be black. You know, I was being I was being shorted because I was with these black guys, and of course my men were suffering. And so the white officers uh, in the reenactor companies, we went to the assistant producer Ray Herbick, and we said, look. This is what's happening. And if it doesn't stop, our guys are walking. We're leaving. You know, you, you'll have only half as many and then, and the best drilled, best looking extras will be gone. And then the film company made, made changes. And, 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 you know, they said, can you keep the street people from rushing the caterer? And we'll say, yeah, we'll make sure of that. And then street guys, were, you know, they, they'd act up once in a while, but they were decent people. And they said, yeah, we want to get our stuff too. So we worked it out. So it, it happened in Hollywood, didn't happen in history. As you say, so you got to play the the role of Shaw that we saw in the movie was pretty much kind of your role there. Yeah. 
Interesting. Well, there was another example that we saw in the movie of Prejudice Against the 54th, and it had to do with their pay. And this was another scene where kind of what you were mentioning earlier in, in the movie, um, you, you start to see Shaw starting to sympathize with his men and starting to understand them. In this case, uh, Shaw has to stand up in front of all his men and tell them that even though they agreed to be paid the regular army wage of $13 a month, they're only going to get paid $10 a month. Of course, nobody's happy about this. They tear up their papers, and then Shaw ends up tearing his up too, saying that if they're not going to take any pay, none of us will. But the movie never really goes back to that topic. Did they? Did nobody end up getting paid, or did anybody get paid at all? Well, that's an excellent question, and, and it's, it's a wonderful issue. I'm glad that they, they did illustrate it in the movie. I believe it was the Militia Act of 1862, which was passed before Washington authorized the recruitment of blacks, but it said that if black troops were raised, they would be paid the same amount of money as black laborers. Uh, a Union Army private at that time got $13 a month. And if you were a corporal or a sergeant or sergeant major, you did more. But the, the law said that black troops would get paid $10 a month, regardless of rank, and $3 would be stopped for their clothing. So you get 7 bucks a month. Now, Governor Andrew kind of ignored that, and he told the men of the 54th, when, if you join this regiment, you will get the same pay as white troops, and we'll give you a $50, uh, I think it was a $50 bounty. And also the state raised money to help support the wives and children of, the, of these men. But Shaw found out, uh, after the regiment was formed, that it was going to be paid that $10 flat fee. The officers would get their the regular pay, you know, but, but not, nothing less than that. You know, it wasn't dramatic like the movie. It wasn't this big scene where Denzel Washington kind of leads a, a limited mutiny. But Shaw said, if you're not going to pay us what these might have been promised, none of us will take pay. None of us will take pay. So but that does capture the spirit. This went on for 16 months. Friends of black troops, Andrew, they're all putting pressure on the War Department. And then after well, about, a, about a year and a half, the uh, federal government said that, I think it was June of 1864, okay, we're, we're going to get the same pay as white troops. And if you were not uh, ins, uh, enslaved, if you did not own any, owe anyone uh, unrequited labor at the start of the war, you'll get your back pay. So the guys in the 54th qualified for getting you know, everything that was entitled, they, to which they were entitled to, but more than two-thirds of the U.S. colored troops were former slaves. So it's not until 1865, to the very end of the war, where they changed that and say, no, no, equal pay for, for all Union soldiers. So, yeah, you know, they show this refusal to take pay, but it's months later before it's resolved, long after Shaw's killed, long after the, the movie ends. Yeah, it's another example of uh, kind of compressing timeline, which a lot of movies have to do in order to get that. But it sounds like a very a, a, an important part to to at least highlight and mention. Yes. And it was a real burden uh, on the troops, too. I mean, the officers, they came from well-off families. They had, you know, they'd get money from home. But a lot of these guys, you know, they today we'd say they lived from paycheck to paycheck. There wasn't really a paycheck system back then, but you lived from, you know, your wage, one wage period to another. So not only do they lack money to send home to their dependents if they have them, but you, you, know, you have money to go and buy a drink in your free time or, or you know, some other creature comfort. And some of them got quite surly. After months of this, uh, some officers from the 54th and their, their letters and diaries talked about having a, the men were refusing to do duty. And so they had to kind of pick them up by the scruff of the deck and push them in the line and stuff. You know, so they made a principled stand, but 
principles uh, sometimes, well, they, they can only take you so far. I mean, the regiment never actually mutinied, but there was friction because of this situation. They felt betrayed. They felt lied to those black troops. I, understandably so. I mean, you're expected to get paid. And if you don't get paid, then why am I risking my life? <laughs> uh-huh. If we head back to the movie, uh, according to the movie's timeline, it's June of 1863 that training ends. And then Colonel Shaw and the 54th are placed under the command of General Charles Parker in South Carolina. And here we get to see the 54th getting their first action. But it's not really what they anticipated. It's not combat. But instead, Shaw is ordered by General Harker's second in command, Colonel Montgomery, to burn a town after they loot it. Was that what the first action was for the 54th burning and looting towns? Well, that one incident fairly well represented. The regiment finished its training by the middle of May. May 18th or so got its colors. On the 28th of May, paraded through Boston, uh, which is captured well in the movie, and then takes ship down to the Department of the South, Union-controlled islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, the department commander is Major General David Hunter, uh, who had tried to raise black troops without authorization. He was a real abolitionist. Uh, Harker is a made-up character. But the 54th is assigned to a brigade commanded by Colonel James Montgomery, who was in charge of a, of a contraband regiment, former slaves, the 2nd South Carolina. And in its first action, uh, the 54th joins a substantial part of the 2nd, and they uh, sail off to a, a town called Darien, Georgia. And they go in, and uh, they ensure there are no rebels there. And, and then uh, uh, Montgomery uh, permits his troops to loot. And uh, then he decides to burn the town, even though he's met with no resistance. It would be a different thing if there were rebels inside the house shooting at you. But, you know, he's just going to burn the town to make an example of it. And that really upset Shaw. He would write home. He would write to his superiors that he didn't go down south uh, to be a plunderer. <laughs> he brought his men down uh, to fight in a stand-up battle like our Potomac Army is accustomed to, a line from one of his letters. So. Yeah, they ravage the town of, of, of Darien. Uh, two of the three churches are burned down, in fact. Shaw is really upset, I mean, and it affects his family. After the war, his mother, on two occasions, will raise money, a total of $1,000. And that's back when $1,000 really amounted to something to help rebuild uh, the churches of Darien, or at least the Episcopal Church. They'll, they'll erect a church and a chapel. So uh, that really mortified Shaw. And, and, he, and he realized, if this is what my regiment's given to do, you know, they're not fighting. They're not proving themselves as men. They're marauders. They're, in effect, acting like savages. And that's not the purpose of this regiment. So, yeah, he, he files complaints. We see a little bit of that in the movie. Shaw just... Of course, I guess the way the the movie portrays it, it's he's not a fan of the looting and stuff, but he really just gets fed up that the 54th are not allowed to go into combat. We see him sit down with General Harker, and he then uses this. He talks about how he knows about some 34 mansions that have been pillaged and burned. He knows about the 4,000 bales of cotton that have been smuggled through the lines with payments to parties unknown, as the movie says it, except by Harker, of course. And there's false quartermaster requisitions and confiscated valuables shipped north as personal baggage. And so if we're to believe the movie, we see that Colonel Shaw is basically blackmailing General Harker to get the 54th transferred to a combat command. Did that really happen? Well, there's not a face-to-face -face confrontation. 
but letters get sent. This is not what we, this is not our purpose. And this is not what I consider legitimate warfare. James Montgomery had a different point of view. He came from Kansas. He had been a friend of John Brown, you know, part of these paramilitaries battling border ruffians and rescuing slaves from Missouri. And he believed in the hard hand of warfare. If these people want to want to rebel, then they're going to lose everything. That that be a lesson to them. And hopefully that will be a lesson to people who haven't lost everything yet to give up. Was that something that was common, taking a step back from this part of the war? Was looting and pillaging by the Union Army something that happened a lot? Looting and pillaging happens whenever you give tens of thousands of young men weapons and put them in positions of danger and fatigue and deprive them of getting as much food they need to eat. If they find cattle or chickens or a wine cellar in France during World War II, uh, they're going to help themselves. The Union Army uh, originally tried to suppress such behavior because their rationale is, this is going to be a quick war, and we don't want to have to maintain half a million men in the South for an indefinite period. You know, we want a reconciliation. So we're not going to touch slavery or we'll return slaves, at least to, to loyal masters. And you know, we're not going to go after private property. If it's being used to help the rebel war effort, that's one thing. But as time goes by, you know, if you're in the Union Army during this war, the moment you walk into Confederate territory, you are a target for guerrillas. The minute you walk beyond your picket line, the minute you go out on a foraging expedition, there are people who are trying to kill you. This is constant. I mean, you may be in battle just you know, less than a week out of every year. But, uh, you know, you face this constant danger and, and guerrillas can't survive unless civilians support them and cover for them and hide them. And the attitude begins to rise that, OK, these people are helping the war effort. These people are help, helping to hurt us. These people are resisting. Uh, they're not going to quit unless we take the gloves off and hit them, too. And so it becomes it becomes increasingly common. So that by 1864, it's really official Union policy. I'm going to grant, you know, cut Sherman loose to ravage Georgia and the Carolinas. He sends Philip Henry Sheridan into the Shenandoah Valley to do the same thing. And it's happening elsewhere as well. The idea is these people started this war. They did it because they wanted to protect their slaves and their wealth. Well, we're going to beat them and we're going to take their slaves and wealth away from them and teach them a lesson. Uh, and hopefully you know, then they'll, they won't try this again. <laughs> Wow, almost becomes total war at that point. Pretty close. I mean, we're not dropping bombs on them. Sherman leave their homes before they, he burned them down. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, we haven't crossed that line, but we're crossing others into what we, what we do regularly in modern warfare. Well, according to the movie, the actual first combat that we see for the 54th is at James Island in South Carolina. And the date in the movie is July 16th, 1863. As it's shown in the movie, this is a battle that takes place in the woods. Uh, first, we see the Confederates' cavalry charge. They're repelled by the 54th, and then as they're kind of celebrating, repelling the cavalry, then the infantry come in. We see the two sides forming lines. They take aim, fire at each other, and then before long, the Confederate line advances, and the fighting turns to bayonets and hand-to-hand -hand combat. How well do you think the movie did depicting the Battle of James Island? It's a nice view of Civil War linear combat. Uh, the 54th, Shaw's letter-writing campaign finally paid off. And uh, on July 8th, 1863, the 54th Massachusetts embarks for Charleston 
where uh, Brigadier General uh, Quincy Adams Gilmore, who has succeeded Dave Hunter as commander of the Department of the South, he has assembled an army of, uh, of more than 10,000 men to take Charleston, uh, the capital of South Carolina, the place where the Civil War began. And he's going to approach Charleston Harbor from the south. Charleston Harbor on the south is formed by several islands. Uh, the island that, that Gilmore's really uh, interested in is called Morris Island because it kind of curves around. It forms the southern side and the southern uh, mouth of Charleston Harbor. It, uh, if you get to that uh, far end of it, uh, you can plant a cannon to take out Fort Sumter, which is now a Confederate-held fort that controls the mouth of Charleston Harbor. Take out Sumter, you can go in, you place Charleston under naval guns and force it to surrender. So Gilmore wants to, to capture uh, all of Morris Island, but he decides to create a diversion. There's another island on the south side of Charleston Harbor called James Island. He sends about 4,000 troops there, including the 54th Massachusetts, to make the Confederates think that's his main effort. The Confederates fall for the bait and decide to, uh, to counterattack. On the morning of, of uh, July 16th, the uh, 54th has three of its 10 companies, along with some companies from a white regiment, the 10th Connecticut, in an advanced picket line. A picket line is kind of like your advanced warning system. You place it out in front of your, your main group of troops so if the enemy moves on you, you don't have enough men to stop them, but you have enough men to slow them down and make a lot of noise so you can form up the rest of your force and turn out and, and fight unsurprised. So they're on, on picket duty and Confederates attack. Uh, mostly infantry, they do have a company of cavalry. And they hit these picket lines and they hit them hard. The 10th Connecticut boys are uh, deployed with their backs to a swamp. And if the 54th men fall back too fast, they'll be cut off and captured. So the 54th guys stand longer than would normally be the case to hold the rebels at bay. And the 10th Connecticut escapes. Uh, and then there's melees. Uh, Confederate troops get in among them, and even some cavalry get in with their uh, revolvers and sabers, and, and they take some casualties before they fall back. And by that time, the rest of the Union force on James Island is swarmed, able to stop the Confederates from advancing any further, and the uh, 54th guys get credit for saving their white comrades. It's a big attitude transformation at this time. So that's how that fight unfolded. Uh, I mean, the, the uh, the movie shows it kind of like phases, a cavalry attack against the line of infantry, which is a foolish thing to do, and then the Confederate infantry, and then you have a melee. So, you know, again, one can argue with the choreography, but yeah, they see their first action, and they do very well. That's something I've always been fascinated by is how, especially in movies depicting the, the Civil War, how it's it tends to go in waves like that. Like you have, okay, well, in this case, we have the horses first, but even if if there's, it's just infantry it tends to go from okay we're going to shoot from we're going to line up and we're going to shoot from far away and then maybe we'll advance a little bit further and we're going to line up and shoot a little bit closer and then it always ends up going to bayonets and hand-to-hand -hand fighting and that's just the way it always happens well you know again the tactics are pretty authentic uh civil war infantry were trained to fight in a two-rank line of battle the manual told infantrymen that in order to maintain their lines so that every rifle could be could be used, you wouldn't have people getting out too front of too far in front of their comrades, might get shot or burned by the blasts of, of the shots, the gunpowder coming out of the barrel of the guy behind them. They were told, you know, to just two ranks were supposed to be within 18 inches of each other. And each line, the men were told to maintain that line, you maintain the touch of the elbow. 
So they are sandwiched together. If you don't fire too high or too low, there's a good chance that you'll hit something. Fortunately, most Civil War soldiers weren't trained marksmen. So there was a lot of over and under firing. That's why officers were often heard yelling at their men, aim at their belt buckles, aim at their knees, because you know, they're jerking the trigger. But the rifle musket, which was introduced in 1855 to the U.S. Army, uh, replaced the smoothbore musket, which had a killing range of about 100 yards. With a rifle musket, you could penetrate six inches of pine board at 600 yards. That's enough penetration to kill a human being. And because it was rifled, because it put a spin or a spiral on the bullet, it was much more accurate than the old smoothbore. So, uh, you know, you could reach out and touch someone at a much greater distance. But, you know, America is not uh, one big, vast, open plain. You have tree lines, you have houses, etc. Most of the spotting was at uh, 250, 350 yards. But still, you know, you could deliver an accurate and telling fire at that distance. Most attacks got shot to pieces before it became a matter of bayonet to bayonet. I mean, it did happen on James Island because the Federals are badly outnumbered. They couldn't put down enough fire to keep the rebels from getting close to them. But most, uh, you know, most bayonet attacks didn't work that well if your enemy was alert, had a good clear field of fire and plenty of artillery support. But it looks, but it looks dramatic on film. And again, I, I can't quibble because there was bayonet fighting on James Island. Well, speaking of battles, the big battle at the end of the movie is at Fort Wagner. And we'll get to the battle itself in a moment. But before we do that, I'd like to see how well the movie did setting up the events before the battle. Because the way the movie explains it is through General George Strong. And he's saying that no one will take Charleston without first silencing the forts that protect its harbor. The first of those forts is Fort Wagner. He says there's a natural defile or a narrow pass. And only one regiment can go in at a time. That leading regiment needs to keep the defending Confederate soldiers occupied for long enough that reinforcements can exploit the breach. And when I was watching this, it's one of those, it almost seemed like a Hollywood moment, like, oh man, we need to do this. This, you know, this is a massive campaign, but of course only one regiment is going to be able to fit. It just almost seems to line up too perfectly. So of course, Shaw volunteers the 54th, having the honor of leading the charge, even though they haven't slept in two days, according to the movie. How well did the movie do setting up the attack on Fort Wagner being led by the 54th after not slipping for a couple days? That's accurate. After the fight on James Island, which is the 16th of July, Shaw and some of the other troops there, since that was a diversion, are ordered to Morris Island for the main push. But no one's really thought out how to get them from point A to point B. And so they go marching from one island to another and this is the South Carolina coast. There are a lot of swamps and morasses and very narrow footpaths through these bogs and things like that. I mean, they start them off, uh, it's almost night. So they're, they're, they're staggering around in the darkness and it rains all that evening and they get drenched. They're in wool uniforms and it's just very slow going. At one point, they're ferried onto a steamer to go part of the way. They only have one little rowboat to ferry more than 600 men, you know, under the steamer. So people are standing on the beach, trying to dry out, they get rained on again. They're on their feet for 50 hours. I mean, some guys did just sat down while they were waiting at some place where, where the going was slow, etc. Now, George Crockett Strong, Brigadier General George Crockett Strong, he's another real character. He's one of the people to whom Shaw writes. The strongest fairly newly arrived in the Department of the South. He's given command of the upper brigade. He's a Massachusetts man. So he's someone who's enjoyed Andrew's patronage in his rise to uh, military uh, grandeur. And Shaw's saying, yeah, I, you know, 
unless my men fight besides white men, instead of being, you know, the segregated brigade doing this raiding stuff, unless they fight be- beside white men, they'll have no witnesses to what they can do. Would you please take me under your command? Could you pull some strings? So uh, Shaw and his guys, they arrive on Morris Island, and uh, it's getting on toward the evening of, of what's at least well into the afternoon of, on the 18th of July, two days later. Strong says to him, you can lead the attack if you want to. I know your guys are worn out, but you know this, is, this seems to be what you want. And Shaw says, yes. Shaw agrees, because he doesn't know when he's going to get an opportunity. Like it's one of his letters, in fact, he, he said, if they will only give us a chance. Well, here's his chance. And, and so he, he agrees. That gives me a lot more context than I even got from the movie, just knowing that they were set up as a regiment to look up to for other regiments in the army as well, which is a huge part of it. And I know the movie kind of implies some of that, but a lot of the context that you gave uh, earlier really helps set up how much more important it is to take advantage of those opportunities. And for the layout of Charleston's defense, Morris Island's on the south side of Charleston Harbor. It's the island furthest to the east. And it's kind of, um, you know, think of a, of a heron. Uh, you know, have a body. That's the southern part where, where the Union troops are. And then leading north, the, the island narrows. You have this, this neck. And then it kind of curves to the northwest. And at the far tip, that's Cummings Point. And there's a Confederate fortification, a battery there to protect Fort Sumter, which is across the water. And Fort Wagner guards the, the back of that narrow neck. So you have to take Fort Wagner, and then you can go up to the very northern tip of Morris Island and, and aim your guns at Fort Sumter. And to take Sumter, that kicks in the door to Charleston Harbor. Speaking of the, the battle at, at Fort Wagner, we can get to the actual battle itself, which happens at the very end of the movie. We see the 54th lead the charge. They take cover in the sand dunes until, under the cover of night, they attack the fort itself. And in the charge on the fort, Shaw is shot and killed. While we don't actually see the other main characters dying, we see them racing to the interior of the fort. They run into some large Confederate guns, and then the camera kind of, you see a bunch of smoke. It fills the screen, and when it clears, the battle is over, and the movie focuses on Colonel Shaw's body in a mass grave of bodies being buried. At the very end, the movie has some text that says the 54th Massachusetts lost over half its number in the assault, and the fort was never taken. But word of their bravery spread, and Congress authorized raising black troops throughout the Union. Is that an accurate depiction of what really happened? Overall, they reach uh, Morris Island. They're put at the head of the assault column, 6,000 troops, three brigades. The lead brigade is, is General Strong's. They're going to charge along a beach, no more than 100 yards wide. Uh, you have the Atlantic Ocean on your right if you were in the 54th, and then you have marshes from Vincent's Creek on your left. The space is so narrow, you can't deploy the entire regiment in line. So Shaw breaks his regiment up into two divisions. He goes with the first division with the national colors, the stars and stripes, as you see in the movie. And then his second in command, uh, Ned Hallowell, who's now a lieutenant colonel, went with uh, the, the white state colors of Massachusetts. And uh, they have been bombarding Fort Wagner all day from both land and sea. It was arguably the most intensive bombardment of the Civil War. 9,000 shells plowed into this sand fort. It's 30 feet tall, in, in, in fact. Uh, and they thought they were just 
leveling it. But what happened was a Union shell would plow into the fort, explode, the sand would go up in the air, and then come back down. It was wrinkled and rumpled looking, but, but the walls were still there. It was still intact. The guns weren't knocked out. Confederate garrison, about 1,300 men. Most of them were crammed into what they called a bomb-proof shelter with this just big cavernous room under 12 feet of sand and thick rafters and things like that. They were in there all day on a hot July day in South Carolina. Saved their lives, but it must have been hell being in this unventilated space. So they're bombarding this, this fort, and they're thinking you know, the Confederates aren't firing back. They're not stupid enough to show themselves under that bombardment. They think, okay, we've silenced it. Let's go. And so Shaw uh, is put first, and, and he's ordered to spearhead this attack. The attack uh, is launched at dusk, just as the light is failing. So it's not full daylight, as in the movie, because the idea was give the Union troops the protection of darkness. And Shaw's guys uh, uh, start moving down the beach. They're observed from Fort Wagner. They're also observed uh, from Confederate forts on, on other points all around Charleston Harbor, which began firing on the beach, began firing exploding shell. Uh, this was Civil War ammunition, would be a you know, kind of you know, hollow uh, cast iron uh, projectile filled with, uh, with gunpowder, and then other projectiles, maybe golf ball-sized cast iron balls called canister or, or the shell would turn into shrapnel. So they're firing on the beach as well. Wagner really reserves its fire until Shaw's guys are about 200 yards away, and then it just opens up, according to one eyewitness, it becomes a, a volcano of detonating death. And so they're, they're within artillery range, they're also within musket range. According to Lewis Douglas, uh, he saw uh, shells explode uh, among the troops that would the clear away spaces 20 feet wide. Humans would be there, you know, evacuated, or they'd be chunks of bodies. Uh, but they closed ranks. Shaw drew his, his uh, or brandished his sword, yelled uh, forward, men started running, uh, and they started running after him. Their heads are down. He's trying to get through that storm of iron and lead, and they headed toward Wagner. If they'd gone straight ahead, they would have hit the part of the fort that uh, covered the bomb proof. And that part was undefended initially, because it was supposed to be held by a regiment uh, that uh, was at the back of the bomb proof, and these guys were, were so, you know, part, they were partially asphyxiated, they were, they were so dazed that they didn't get out quickly enough. But for some reason, Shaw veered to the left, to a straight wall uh, that connected the two ends of southern, uh, the southern curtain of the fort, and there was a moat there, five feet deep, uh, three to four feet of water in it. They splash across that, and then Shaw leads them up the sloping 30-foot sand wall, which you know, must have been tough because you're, you're trying to climb a giant sand hill. Your feet are getting stuck in, there, in that. You know, you're slipping and sliding. He's the first one to the top. So unlike in the movie where he's killed halfway up, he gets to the top, raises his saber, yells, onward, boys. And a North Carolina soldier there shoots a rifle, musket into his heart, and kills him. But some of his men pile over the wall. And there is a melee, bayonet to bayonet. But, you know, as you're coming up over this wall, you're a perfect target. You're silhouetted against the sky for the defenders. So some guys follow him in and die with him. Uh, and then the rest of the regiment, they hunker down along the outer wall and try to hold it as like a, a, you know, a beachhead or a bridgehead for the other Union troops who are coming up behind. The other 5,400, there are about 600 men in the 54th Massachusetts when it made this attack. But their support doesn't come 
The rest of Strong's brigade is delayed, and when it moves, it goes straight ahead uh, into that portion that the 54th bypassed, the portion of the fort. And the second brigade was held back for 15 minutes. They're being fed in piecemeal. That gives the Confederates time to react, to shift troops from one part of the wall to another. And the whole Union assault falls apart. Eventually, the men of the 54th, you know, they, they realize that it's a lost effort and they, they will melt away. They will retreat. The um, national colors during the attack uh, on the fort, the original color bearer falls into a rifle pit, a foxhole in the darkness. And a sergeant named William H. Carney picks up the flag and carries it to the top of the parapet so it reaches the top of the wall. And he's hit several times at each leg, in the shoulder, and in an arm. The state colors reaches the parapet, and the rebels try to capture it. And they manage to tear it off the flagstaff, but the flagstaff is saved. So it's not like we, we just honored ourselves just in the, in the middle of this, of this ruckus. We lost uh, the state flag and got torn to shreds. You know, the, the other Union troops, they, they go into uh, the, the top of the bomb proof, has a very narrow exit. The rebels are able to seal it off. The commander of that brigade, General Strong, is, is wounded. The commander of the second brigade eventually gets hit in the, in the forehead by, by a bullet that blows out the back of his head. The Union commander, hearing that the attack is just being shot to pieces, uh, General Gilmore, doesn't send the third brigade in. So the whole thing falls apart. It's a big, bloody mess. 1,500 Union casualties out of the 6,000 that went in. So the 54th lost just under half uh, of, its, of its personnel. Two-thirds of its officers become casualties. The senior officer is an 18-year-old captain, Luis Emilio. He takes command of the regiment or what's left of it. Uh, but uh, of, of the 10 Union regimental commanders, uh, I think only three came out of it unscathed. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's 25% casualties. The Civil War saw a lot of bloody battles. And that would, as far, as far as per capita losses, that would, that would be, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the worst uh, casualty rates. I mean, there were worse, but that was bad enough. So then after that battle, the movie seems to imply that the 54th was used as almost propaganda might not be the right term, but, you know, almost used as, as a, a marketing rally cry almost to try to recruit more black troops around the Union. Were they used then after that, you know, that suffering these heavy losses, but w were they used as that post-Fort Wagner? Let's start with uh, the question about propaganda. Certainly. Again, that was their role. And they lived up to expectations. They fought and died as bravely as white men in the stupid tactical fashion that was in, in, in vogue during the Civil War. Charge, attack, attack this prepared position. They went in uh, with their muskets, the rifle muskets unloaded. They take this at bayonet point. Uh, they loaded once they got reached the top of the wall. And they were firing over it at the rebels, but they did what was asked of them. They, they, it was unsuccessful, but enough of them. It wasn't like they all broke around at the first at the first shot. They they suffered nearly fifty percent casualties. You can't ask more of that from human flesh. Uh, and the people who were in the attack, General Strong was mortally wounded, but he gave them an endorsement and said that they, they really deserved greater success because they gave their all. And Robert Gould Shaw becomes a, a martyr. This guy, you know, he comes from a well-known family. He puts his life on the line. He leads them into the jaws of death. He dies at their head. And then the Confederates, well, they, they played into the anti-slavery cause's hands. After they found his body, they mistreated him. The use of black troops by the Union uh, was a real sore point 
among Confederates because they believed that uh, one reason you had to keep black slaves was that if they weren't slaves, they would turn against their masters. And then either the masters would have to exterminate them or the slaves would exterminate the master class. Thomas Jefferson agonized over whether it would be possible to get rid of slavery. In the end, decided no, because as he put it, the South has the wolf by the ears. You pick a wolf up by the ears, you can't let go because Wolfie will tear your throat out. You know, this was you know, the, the psychology. It's one reason why these people left the union in the first place. Well, we've got a president who says he wants to phase out slavery. Can't be done peacefully. Our lives are at stake. So we're you know, hysteria and we're leaving the union. Never happened, but didn't keep people from believing it. What fear has such power to shape history? So this white guy who dared to lead black troops, we are not going to treat him with the honors of war. They stripped him down to his underwear, put him on display inside Wagner for, for a while. Then uh, they took him outside where they had dug a, a pit. They threw him at the bottom. And then they threw 25 of his dead black soldiers on top of him as a way of, you know, dishonoring him in their eyes. That was designed. And after the fighting, when things had calmed down and the fight for Fort Wagner uh, devolved into a siege, I mean, eventually it was taken. The Federals dug uh, trenches and saps and forced the Confederates to evacuate Fort Wagner by September 1863, but they didn't take it by assault. But in the interim, you know, they would exchange flags of truce. They asked about the whereabouts of Shaw's body because because it was customary, high-ranking officers, their remains would be released to their friends for burial. And Confederates replied, we buried him with his, well, the N-word. A little later, a Union commander uh, on Morris Island, General Gilmore, got a letter from Shaw's father. And Shaw's father said, I, I, we've, we've heard that there's an effort being made to recover my son's body, uh, you know, in the fort, especially after Fort Wagner, if it's taken. He said, uh, the family doesn't want that. We can't think of any better burial place for our son than among his men. And later, when uh, the Robert Gould Shaw Memorial was being planned to be placed on Boston Common, where it stands today, it's considered aesthetically probably the best Civil War memorial uh, ever ever fabricated. The original uh, plan, the, the sculptor, Augustus St. Gaudens, was to have an equestrian figure of Shaw on you know, there, full three-dimensional statue. His family insisted that he be shown with his men. So at the end of the movie, that base relief Shaw on horseback and those bronze black soldiers marching beside him. Again, that's testimony to the principles of the Shaw family and the principles for which he ultimately died. Wow. You know, not only does Shaw become a martyr as a result of uh, his death and the circumstances surrounding his burial at Fort Wagner, but the 54th, in effect, uh, is viewed as a regiment of martyrs. Now, some black regiments had already been raised before the 54th. The 54th was the first black regiment from a northeastern state raised for the Union Army. But, you know, they, they began raising a couple of regiments in South Carolina. Uh, second South Carolina, in fact, is there uh, when, when the 54th arrives in the Department of the South. Uh, uh, they raised some uh, black regiments around New Orleans. A rogue uh, uh, or maverick uh, Kansas senator named Jim Lane raised his own black regiment in 1862, didn't give a damn if Lincoln would authorize it or not. And, uh, the first Kansas colored infantry uh, then uh, eventually was brought into the Union Army. But there was a question as to whether this was a good idea. Again, there was a question as to whether blacks would fight or fight well. 
and uh, the 54th Massachusetts, its example, helped to uh, sweep away a lot of doubts and open the doors to this uh, experiment in earnest. So that by the war's end, close to 180,000 black men will be enlisted in the Union Army. Uh, 166 or so regiments are added to the Union order of battle, which makes a big difference. Even though a lot of these guys were kept in rear areas, I mean, a number did fight, not just the 54th. There were black troops who were involved in combat in the Trans-Mississippi, in the Western Theater, and around Petersburg especially. A black division was one of the units that helped cut off Lee's retreat at Appomattox, which really must have rubbed those Confederate soldiers raw. That vision to see all these black guys with guns telling them, your war's over. Even though, as I say, a lot of blacks were kept in uh, support uh, or garrison roles, still that, that contributed to the overall Union numerical supremacy that helped the war turn out the way it did. There was no pause in the assault like in the movie. You know, they, they start out and then take cover in the dunes and then we'll start when it's dark. The attack began as darkness was falling and then they didn't stop until they, were, until they ran into the brick wall or the, the dirt wall at Fort Wagner. But again, extending the action, of course, uh, makes for better entertainment. It doesn't really violate the spirit of what happened. Sure. Well, speaking of the entertainment side, you were since you were involved in the production of the movie itself, do you have any other like, behind-the-scenes stories of what that was like? There was a lot of idealism uh, among people uh, who got involved in the film. The reason I, I got involved in it was because I, I knew the story of the 54th, and I thought, well, this is going to present American audiences with a, a moment in which white Americans and black Americans came together, put their lives on the line to extend the boundaries of freedom, which the film was made in 1989, was a good lesson to be taught at that time, and it's just as valid and just as needed today. Uh, well, the idealism aside, the nitty-gritty of making a movie, uh, they wanted to, uh, this, these were the days before CGI, so to, to shoot the film, especially the big assault scene at the end, they wanted to have lots of black reenactors, some war reenactors, but there weren't really that many in the United States at that time. So uh, they put out a call to, to people, white guys who were involved in living history, try to recruit black units. And I, I taught at a college or university in, in Arkansas, the University of Central Arkansas, and I convinced my superiors, wouldn't it be a great idea if we took a contingent of our kids out there uh, to work in this movie, a Southern University, helping to commemorate a stirring page in black history. And I was able to raise enough money to outfit 13 of my kids. And so out we went to Jekyll Island, Georgia, and met all these people from other Parts in the country, uh, there were about 16 fellows from Ohio State. An English professor had the same brilliant idea and brought them down. Uh, Brian Pahanka, who is a big Civil War um, public historian, worked for Time Life Books. He and a, a ranger, an African-American ranger, Bill Waltney, in the National Park Service, raised about 50 black, uh, just you know, ordinary middle-class guys uh, from the Washington, D.C. area. And then we had these, as you say, these street people from Brunswick. Georgia, uh, who were uh, full of uh, machismo and like to show off and especially try to impress my, my country kids from Arkansas, tell them all kinds of crazy. In fact, one day while we're waiting to attack Fort Wagner, one of my uh, student soldiers came up to me and said, Dr. Irwin, I said, what is it, DJ? He had a worried look on his face and he said, that guy over there's got a gun. And I gave him a look and I said, DJ, we all got guns. And, you know, it's a war movie, right? No, he's got a Saturday Night Special. 
he showed it to me. He says he's going to use it on the Rebs when we get into uh, into the fort. I say he's just he's just that's just tough talk. He, he's not going to do that. I'm hoping that I was right. No, turned out I was. But when we attacked Fort Wagner, we crossed the moat and we stopped at the base of the fort. And that's the scene where where Shaw and his guys are under fire and they're you know the attacks snarled up. And Shaw decides, well, I've got to get on my feet and grab the color bearer and lead the way. There are a few seconds where, where some of the 54th guys exchange fire with the Rebs on top. And so, you know, we, we shot crossing the moat a couple of times. And then we're on the base of the wall. Everything got shot more than once, eight or nine takes very often. They decided now, okay, we're going to do this little firefight. And the production people just moved them on, all the black reenactors, and handed out blank cartridges. And the guys loaded up and they said, when, when they yell, uh, action, you know, start shooting. You know, don't you all shoot at once. Some of you take your time. So we did that, and we're firing real black powder like they did during the Civil War, creating clouds of, black, of white smoke. Bang, 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 bang. Cut. So we stop, and we're looking up the walls of Wagner at the Rebs, and the smoke dissipates. And sticking out of the, the walls of Wagner were three rammers, ramrods. I mean, they gave cartridges to street people who weren't trained to, to load and fire these weapons and didn't realize that you take the rammer out. Because if you don't, you turn it into a projectile that could impale somebody. And boy, that was spine tingling. The production people went through all the black re, re, uh, extras and got the white officers there and says, this guy know what he's doing? No, he doesn't. Give us those cartridges. <laughs> that was a, a near miss or near some near misses. Maybe some overshot too. I don't know. But uh, the movie turned out a lot better than I thought it would because there was a lot of chaos going on. And uh, the director, Ed Zwick, had never directed a, an epic before. He had some odd ideas, uh, some things that happened when I wasn't on set, but I heard from people who had been there longer that he, when the 54th entered uh, uh, Reedville or Camp Megs for its training, he wanted the men to sing a, a um, hip-hop version of We Are Coming, Father Abram. Historical consultants and other people said that they didn't Blacks didn't sing like that in the 19th century. Don't tell me I'm an expert on 19th century black music. Well, fortunately, that hit the, the cutting room floor. One of the best sources we have on the 54th after its arrival in the South comes from the pen of Charlotte Fortney. She was a uh, light-skinned African-American woman, came from a well-established Philadelphia family. And after the Federals began taking over some of these islands, she went South to teach school to the children of runaway slaves. And when Shaw comes down, she meets him, and she's utterly charmed by him. He's a consummate gentleman, and he's just happy to deal with someone educated, to socialize with her. They, they meet a couple times once she's in front of his tent, and the, and the regimental glee club sings for them. She ends up writing, you know, how blessed is his mother and his wife. He got married shortly before he went south. In fact, that doesn't show up in the movie. Well, the script decided to let Shaw have an affair with Charlotte Ford, but that got cut, too. Uh, back in those days, uh, movie houses wanted films that ran two hours so they could show them more often and make more money. And so a lot, a lot of things got cut from the uh, the final version that uh, some it's a good thing it ended up on the cutting room floor. Adding on to that, then, if you were in charge of what made it into the movie and what didn't make it into the movie, is there anything you wish they had included that that didn't? I think it works well as drama. So I don't want to sound too persnickety. It holds, it holds the audience's attention. It captures the spirit of the black military experience in the Civil War, not necessarily the 54ths in every detail. 
But you know, it would have been neat, I think, uh, if they had really shown that this was a different kind of, of regiment that, you know, that, that uh, you know, mostly free blacks. Most of the black men we meet are runaway slaves, just one exception. And uh, we need to see Lewis Douglas. Usually movie soldiers are, uh, you know, much older <laughs> than, than the guys uh, they're portraying. Uh, my uh, friend of mine uh, chronically refers to Tom Hanks as the world's oldest army ranger captain in World War II. One thing that they did shoot that hit the cutting room floor, and I'm sorry about that, but uh, Frederick Douglass wrote a wonderful manifesto urging blacks to join the 54th. It started, men of color to arms. The iron gate of our prison stands half open. One gallant rush from the north will fling it wide open. And four millions of our brothers and sisters shall march out into liberty. Uh, which, I mean, just, that, that sums up what this regiment meant to the African-American population. Yeah, they're fighting to slavery, but they're fighting to gain a stake for their race in the United States to prove that they belong, that they contribute, that this is their their country, too. Uh, one of these three blacks uh, wrote to a uh, black religious newspaper uh, published out of Philadelphia, and he summed up what these guys, what these guys were doing. He said, if we understand the Declaration of Independence, it asserts the freedom and equality of all men. We ask nothing more. Give us equality and acknowledge us as men. And we are willing to stand by the flag of our union and support the leaders of our great government until every traitor shall be banished from our shore. You can see this in a manifesto from Black Lives Matter today. It's the same impulse. It's the same desire. Denzel Washington certainly you know, captures the ambivalence of blacks who are oppressed. In the end, though, he dies for the flag. So he does, with his actions, express those values. But I would have liked to see it maybe spelled out a little bit more explicitly. I would agree. I think that would have added to the movie a lot more, for sure. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about Glory. I know you've published a lot of work about the 54th. If someone is listening to this, wants to learn more about the 54th, can you share a little bit of information about your work and where someone can find it? Well, the starting point for the history of the 54th was a book called A Brave Black Regiment, which was written by Luis F. Emilio, who was the 18-year-old captain I mentioned. He was the captain of Company E, and he survived the war. And He published it in 1891 and then published a corrected version in 1894. And 100 years later, that was republished by a firm called DeCapo Press, D-A-C-A-P-O. And I wrote the introduction for that uh, so, uh, you know, it's still available on paperback. Uh, there are other editions, but a Brave Black Regiment's a good place to go. Another fine book was edited by uh, Russell L. Duncan called Blue-Eyed Child of Fortune. And that is a collection of Shaw's letters. His letters ended up at Houghton Library at Harvard University, and Duncan edited them and annotated them. And it's a good way to see how Shaw develops up to, the, you know, near the point of his death. But as I say, a number of his black soldiers, too, many of them were literate. Some of their letters have been published. Uh, a Voice of Thunder, edited by Donald Yacovone, uh, Y-A-C-O-B-O-N-E. And th those were the uh, letters of Georgie Stevens. It's a pretty thick book. Stevens survived the war and uh, wrote a lot about it. Uh, he's one guy who complained about not getting equal pay. He was pretty bitter about that. And, and so you get that perspective. They weren't all saints. You know, they didn't just live on, on patriotism. Who does? 
and then another fine collection of 54th letters on the Altar of Freedom, edited by Virginia Adams, and those are the letters of Corporal James Henry Gooding. He does not survive the war. He's a former, I believe, I believe he was a former seaman. There were a lot of sailors in the 54th. His testimony, again, is quite informative and in places quite moving. And then I, I edited a book called Black Flag Over Dixie, which deals with racial atrocities during the Civil War, so I'll get the plug-in for my own, own humble tome there. The first three books I mentioned, if you're focused on the 54th, you won't be dissatisfied by reading them. Thank you again so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Gregory once again for sharing his expertise about the historical accuracy of 1989's Glory. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, all the main characters in the movie were real people. Number two, the 54th Massachusetts set an example that helped sweep away a lot of doubts about raising black regiments in the U.S. Army. Number three, Robert Gould Shaw died during the attack on Fort Wagner. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's go in a random order and start with number two. The 54th Massachusetts set an example that helped sweep away a lot of doubts about raising black regiments in the U.S. Army. That is true. As Gregory explained, at the time, there was a question about whether or not black soldiers would fight well. Even though they failed in their assault on Fort Wagner, as we learned, it didn't have to do with the 54th's part in the battle. For their part, the 54th Massachusetts fought with bravery and proved themselves worthy. Recruitment began in earnest, and as a result, by the time the Civil War ended, some 180,000 black men were enlisted in the Union Army. That brings us to number three. Robert Gould Shaw died during the attack on Fort Wagner. That is also true. As we learned, even though he did make it to the top of the sand walls of Fort Wagner, Shaw was killed during the battle. Afterward, the Confederate soldiers buried him with some of the black men in his regiment, they saw it as a way of degrading Shaw's body, but after Wagner finally fell, Shaw's family insisted there was no better place for him to be buried than alongside his men. That means the lie is number one. All the main characters in the movie were real people. Of the main characters in the movie, Matthew Broderick's character of Robert Gould Shaw was the only real one. As Gregory explained, one of the biggest changes they made was with Morgan Freeman's character, who sort of plays a father figure in the movie. In truth, that position was held by Frederick Douglass's 22-year-old son, Lewis. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that's surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out a little bit more about how much time and money goes into creating a podcast like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all those podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 36 hours to create and cost $19.57 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 36 hours does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. 
It also doesn't include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, social media, email the email newsletter for Based on a True Story, and all those other little things outside creating a podcast episode that are required to make a podcast. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $19.57 just for things related specifically to this one episode. It doesn't include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making a single episode. For example, the cost of the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the cables that are hooked up to the microphone, those cost money as well, the audio interface, the computer, the software, all the podcast and website hosting costs, and on and on. All those things take time to set up and maintain and cost money that goes beyond things that are associated with this one episode. But they are all things that are required because if I didn't do those things, there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I am so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support the show financially so we can keep it going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. We're currently up to 58 minisodes, with each one covering a different fictional movie. For example, we've covered history in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, Jurassic Park, the entire Back to the Future franchise, and the Mummy franchise. It's basically an exclusive podcast all of its own, all about how fictional movies use history and real life to make them seem a little bit more believable. You can find out how to get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you did enjoy today's episode, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.